Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato, uh, and also honored to serve as the moderator of today's book forum. Despite being several years behind us, the causes of the recent financial crisis are still hotly debated. Of course, perhaps that should be no surprise, uh, as the causes of the Great Depression are still debated as well. Um, some would have us believe that crises are inherent to markets and that government is needed either to clean up the mess afterwards or to impose regulation that avoids those excesses in the first place. Uh, of course, such begs the question, if financial markets are so inherently fragile, then financial crises should be less common in highly regulated markets or should at least be random across countries. Of course, a simple comparison across countries reveals that this is far from the case. Uh, some countries like the United States appear to have crises quite regularly, while others like Canada appear to have them rarely, if at all. The book to be discussed today, Fragile by Design, attempts to answer this question. Uh, why do we see this difference across countries uh, while all the similarities, uh, that, such as those countries like Canada and America, differ in so many ways? Its authors, Charles Calamaris and Stephen Haber, combine political history with economics and to examine how coalitions of politicians, bankers, uh, and interest groups form and help shape financial regulation. The authors analyze why these coalitions endure while others do not. They look at how these political coalitions generate the policies that determine entry into banking, determine access to credit, uh, and this importantly determines who pays for bank bailouts and rescues. Uh, it would be no exaggeration to say that professors Calamaris and Haber have written an instant classic in economics. Uh, I could not recommend this book too highly. I would even go as far to say that I view it as probably one of the most important economic books written in the last decade. Fortunately, it is easily accessible to non-economists, so I certainly would encourage those of you who are not economists uh, to read it as well. We are very fortunate to have one of the book's authors with us this afternoon, Charles Calamaris. Charles is the Henry Kaufman Professor of Financial Institutions at the Columbia University Graduate School of Business and a professor at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. He is also the Curriculum Director for the Program for Financial Studies at Columbia. He holds a doctorate in economics from Stanford University. Uh, perhaps more important than all of that, at least to me, uh, is that Charles's scholarship has had a tremendous influence upon my own understandings of financial markets. So if you ever hear me get anything wrong, you can... <laughs> You can't blame you can't blame the, all that on Charles, but I would I would without exaggeration place Charles among the top finance scholars in terms of affecting my own worldview, my own a uh, worldview of understanding financial regulation again at least. Um, I would say it's no exaggeration to say our understanding of financial regulation would be a lot weaker without Charles's work. Uh, our practice of financial regulation would be a whole lot stronger if it incorporated more of his work. Uh, as this book is as much about policymaking as it, about, as it is about economics, we are privileged to have as a discussion Andrew Ullman, who until recently served as the Chief Counsel and Deputy Staff Director for Republicans on the United States Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. He is currently a partner at Venable, one of Washington's pre premier uh, law firms. Among other pieces of legislation, Andrew served as one of the lead negotiators during the crafting and passage of Dodd-Frank. I don't think we should hold him for responsible for that. I, I think I can safely say that uh, Dodd-Frank probably would have been a lot worse as bad as it is if Andrew had not been involved. Uh, before coming to Washington, Andrew began his career at the Richmond Federal Reserve Bank uh, as an economic assistant to the current president of the Richmond Fed, Jeff Lacker. Uh, and despite being a lawyer, Andrew has a deep interest in knowledge in history and economics. Uh, I have personally have greatly benefited from the numerous conversations I've had with him over the last decade on these topics. So I want to thank you for, for coming out on a Monday afternoon, uh, and I want to turn the podium over to Charles.
thanks so much for the, those uh, extremely complimentary and uh, I would also say insightful comments. <laughs> I don't mean about me, I mean about uh, the world of banking. Well, let's get started right away. Let's see if I can manage the technology here. Yes, I can. I think that a good place to start is with a simple fact, which is itself one that I'll bet most of you have not heard. But once you hear it, you'll wonder why you haven't heard it. You are currently living through the worst pandemic of banking crises that the world has ever experienced. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a sense of how much different the current period of the last 40 years around the world is from anything we've experienced before. In the last 40 years, there have been about 100 major crises in different countries, banking crises I'm talking only about now, which I'll define in a minute, banking crises um, over this, this period from 1970 to 2013. The average severity of those crises, meaning that the uh, negative net worth of banks that fail during these banking crises as a fraction of GDP is about 16%. So we've had 100 banking crises with an average severity of negative net worth of failed banks to GDP of about 16%. Now, over the period 1874 to 1913, which was a period when banking was every bit as important relative to GDP as it is now. So it wasn't that we didn't have a lot of banking. We had quite a bit. And by the way, that was a very active market in terms of uh, capital flows and globalization. How many banking crises did we have? that would meet the definition, which I still haven't given you yet, but the same definition as I've applied here. Um, 11, with an average severity of about 3% of GDP. So just a simple numerical comparison of roughly similar duration periods, banking crises in the world are 10 times more likely and about five times more severe on average than for a similar period about 40 years ago. To give you an idea of severity, uh, many people look at the Great Depression in the United States as an extremely severe banking crisis episode. The negative net worth of failed banks during the Great Depression was about 2% of GDP. So when we think about uh, severity, the first thing to, to notice, simple fact, no, no regression analysis, not very complicated statistical analysis. Simple fact is, times are different right now. Let me define banking crisis, though, because it's a very important fact. I'm calling a banking crisis one of two things, and they might both happen at the same time. Either there's a sudden withdrawal of uh, short-term debt typically deposits, but they could also be repo or other kinds of short-term debt instruments, 
sudden withdrawal of deposits from the banking system that's creating a seizing up of the payment system, or a very large number of banks are failing, or both of those things are happening together. And the emphasis is on the crisis in the banking system. And that's distinct from measures that just have to do with whether banks experience some loss or whether we're having a recession or whether asset prices are declining. That doesn't make it a banking crisis. So I want it to be clear. We're using a definition of the phenomenon that we think is relevant. Now, as this chart shows, there's another dimension that's worth noting, basic factual dimension about the current pandemic. And that is, unlike the spread of disease, which tends to be fairly indiscriminate, the spread of crises isn't. So uh, about one-fifth of the countries in the world, including, by the way, the United States during this period, have had two or more of these major financial crises. A little more than half of the countries in the world have had one, and about 30% uh, have had none. And Mark pointed out, Canada being in that 30% category. Um, by the way, Canada's had no major financial crisis, not just since 1970, but since 1817, which was when the first bank in Canada was chartered, the Bank of Montreal. So Canada's never had a banking crisis. So there's another interesting fact. Not only do banking crises vary over time, but they also vary across countries. Um, and it's not just simple differences like uh, poor versus rich countries. As I pointed out, the US is in the crisis-prone category. And that's kind of puzzling. So why do banking crises happen? So, well, economists will typically point to this story. To get a banking crisis, you need two things. One, you need a big shock. Now, it is true that banking crises don't happen unless there is a big shock, meaning something bad happens in the economy, a decline in prices, uh, a recession, often both of them happening together, that's observed prior to the banking crisis. So there's a lot of evidence that a big shock is a necessary condition for a banking crisis. And then economists also point out, banks are a little different from, well, let's say, uh, railroads. Uh, railroads have tended to finance themselves with equity and long-term debt. Banks finance themselves with short-term debt. And what do they finance? They finance very hard-to-value loan portfolios. So the combination of a very hard-to-value loan portfolio Suppose that it's worth a lot, but you can't observe that very easily. And you're worried because, oh, let's say a recession starts. Then you as a depositor, observing that a recession has just started and not being able to observe the value of the loan portfolio, having been given the option from your bank to withdraw your money, which a railroad wouldn't give you because it's financed with long-term debt. So the combination of opaque assets, a big shock, a recession, and the option to withdraw your money makes banks more vulnerable because people can't tell whether their deposits are backed by good assets and they have the option to withdraw their money. That's the standard story I think most economists would give of why banking crises happen. They happen because banks are inherently fragile, fragile in the sense that they have a maturity mismatch, short-term debt and opaque assets, 
and that big shocks tend to happen. Now, I think that there's a lot of validity to the story that I just told. Those basic economic principles are valid. But that can't be the whole story. And the reason it can't be the whole story is because of the picture and the history that we've just recounted. Canada, for example, as we'll talk about maybe a little bit more, Canada is uh, not just a country that's had no banking crises, but it's actually had equal or greater financial depth of its banking system relative to the U.S. throughout its history. In other words, Canada didn't avoid banking crises because it lacks banks. It has lots of banks. And they had a similar banking structure to the banks in the United States in the sense that they were holding opaque assets and issuing short-term debt. Furthermore, Canada has not been a more stable macroeconomy. Canada actually is a primary commodity exporting economy and always has been. And as such, tends to have more volatile GDP. So in terms of its fundamental economic volatility, Canada is equal to or more volatile than the United States. In terms of the presence of banking funded in this sort of inherently fragile way, supposedly, is just as prevalent in Canada, in fact, with more banking assets. And yet, even when there are very big shocks, like the Great Depression, which hit Canada just as hard as it hit the United States, we didn't have a banking crisis there. So something's missing here. And the point, of course, is that banking systems, despite the presence of big shocks and inherent fragility that comes with deposit banking and opaque, opaque assets, can structure institutions privately, sometimes with government assistance, but sometimes without government assistance, that help them to stabilize things so that they don't have crises. And Canada, of course, is a prime example of that. And the, so the point is, the fact that shocks happen and the fact that, that banks perform maturity mismatch doesn't necessarily mean that crises happen. So if there are these good institutions, uh, and we, we can talk more about those, uh, what kinds of things the Canadians did to avoid crises, if those good institutions can come into being, then of course the question is, well, why doesn't everybody do that? And of course you can see where that's gonna lead to our discussion, which is, if there are good ideas that some people do and other people don't do, perhaps that's because the political process isn't capable or willing to implement good ideas. Okay. I've already gone through that. Now, you might say, well, we can fix these problems because we can just copy the Canadians. After all, uh, isn't it just financial regulation that either uh, creates or solves problems? So aren't the differences across time and across countries traceable in, in banking crises, traceable to good or bad regulation? And I think the answer is, yeah, that, there's a lot of evidence in favor of this view. Uh, in particular, there's a lot of evidence in favor of the view that the pandemic that we're currently facing, a banking crises, reflects the increase in government safety net protection of banks without a commensurate, credible increase in prudential regulation of banks. We've basically taken away the market discipline on banks by protecting bank depositors, 
but we haven't substituted for that market discipline a credible regulatory discipline. And so the combination of safety nets without credible regulatory discipline creates much more risk. Now, I think that I can say, and it may surprise you to hear this too, if you're not an academic, that there's no proposition currently in financial economics published in journals by professors that is less controversial than saying that the wave of banking crises has been primarily the result of the expansion of safety nets for banks. That has been established by scores of published journal articles in the top referee journals. We're not struggling to understand this fact. It's very clear. Okay, so then the question is, some countries seem to manage to either avoid expansive safety nets or to have safety nets but to implement prudential regulations that substitute for the market discipline that's taken away by the safety net. But other countries don't. And so that brings us back to the question. If it's regulation, and in the current era I would say regulation is definitely a big part of the problem, why don't all countries copy good regulation? Again, you can see where we're heading with this. If you're looking for an explanation of why would a country repeatedly and apparently willingly fail to improve its regulation, we suggest a good place to look is politics. Because politics is all about the way society reaches agreement. And we model this as something we call the game of bank bargains, as we're trying to explain banking system outcomes. And our basic argument is that under different political rules of engagement, sometimes the coalitions that form that get to decide the rules of the banking game, banking regulation, have a private vested interest in not fixing the regulatory problems we've just been talking about. And I'm not just talking about big banks. They can never, in a democracy like ours, the banks by themselves could never create a political coalition that could be so damaging. They have to be allied with others, including influential politicians who are intermediaries in these, uh, this game of bank bargains, and other vested interests, which we'll explore in a minute. So the point is to ask the question why there's a regulatory failure, look in the direction of political agreements that are sufficiently beneficial to a sufficient number of people that they can be a stable political outcome, despite the fact that they're very socially costly. And final thing to note, banking system rules can be especially useful as tools because it can be very hard to identify the implicit subsidies that are being created for these vested interests through the banking system. These are not on-budget policies, and so that you can pass them without a vote in Congress, saying, saying explicitly that a certain amount of resources is going to go from one party to another. Um, we'll, we'll see how that works as we go through, in particular, the history of US banking regulation. The key point here is banking regulation is operating through a different kind of political mechanism than on-budget 
uh, taxation and expenditure, which often makes it a very convenient tool. Now let's move on to a second puzzle. The puzzle of credit scarcity. We've already talked about the puzzle of banking instability. The puzzle of credit scarcity is going to have a similar sort of structure. Banking credit has been shown, again, in scores of academic articles published in the top economic journals to be extremely helpful for promoting growth. And by the way, also for reducing inequality. Banking credit, if provided through a deep financial system, non-discriminatorily on an arm's length basis, is really the way that small businesses and individuals lift themselves up and grow. Uh, even more interestingly, all of the basic tools of commercial banking have been known about and have been implemented since the middle of the 18th century in Scotland. Pretty much everything of interest about commercial banking was invented in Scotland by the middle of the 18th century. Lines of credit, interest-bearing deposits, clearing houses, branch banking. Um, so here's now another puzzle. If bank credit is so useful, and if the technology for producing it is so simple, why doesn't every country have lots of banking? Well, it's, and the answer, of course, we're going to come up with is quite similar to the answer to the first puzzle. Maybe there are vested interests that actually want to restrict the supply of credit. So just as the banking system underperforms by being very unstable, also underperforms by typically having less than adequate credit. Uh, what kinds of circumstances might lead to less than adequate credit? Uh, I'll give one example, and then we'll move on to talk about things more generally. But you know, in autocracies, the key problem, if you're a banker in an autocracy, is expropriation risk. You may be the dictator's friend today, but that doesn't mean you're going to be the dictator's friend tomorrow. And one of the great things about being a dictator is that you get to expropriate things pretty much without anybody being able to stop you. And that tends to limit the willingness of people to establish banks in which they put their own capital because they can come along and be expropriated by the dictator. So what we find is, systematically, banks don't tend to exist as much in autocracies for this political reason, that autocracies can expropriate bankers. And so by keeping the amount of bank credit very scarce, the interest earned on bank credit is very high, and it compensates bankers for the expropriation risk that comes from the political problem. Now, in democracies, it's going to be a little bit more complicated. But in democracies, we're also going to have a struggle over the rules of the game about who gets access to credit, who gets to enter as a banker to provide credit, and who is going to bear the costs of losses to credit. And of course, how the costs are borne will also influence the profitability of banking, and therefore, who wants to be a banker. So when we think about the scarcity of credit, again, just as when we're thinking about the uh, vulnerability of banking systems, we return to the political question, whether it's in an autocracy or a democracy, of how political constraints through this game of bank bargains that we're going to talk about limit 
the total amount of credit. To give you a little picture of how much this, this uh, supply of credit varies, you can see if you divide the world into four categories of income groups per capita using the World Bank's category, and then you plot here on the vertical axis the private credit in the banking system, uh, credit to the private sector, I should say, in the banking system relative to GDP, you can see that some countries, here's the UK, very high, about one and a half, 150% of GDP in the UK, about 150% of GDP in private credit. Canada, about 100%. The US, about, let's say, 60%. Well, then you come down to the Democratic Republic of Congo, and you can't even see it on the graph. It's about 1%. So you can see there's a wide range. And it's not a, a range that's dictated entirely by, or even mainly by, the income level of the country. There are some countries in the lower range that have very low credit, and there's some that have relatively high credit, and similarly for all the, the ranges. So what's determining this enormous cross-sectional variation? Again, we'd argue it's the way the political game that's establishing banks and the nature of who gets to be a banker, how much credit gets to be supplied, that that's a political outcome. So just to get a little bit of insight into this, uh, this political outcome, let's take these two dimensions that we've just talked about, stability and credit abundance, and say, how many countries manage to be above average in credit abundance and also stable, meaning they haven't had a banking crisis? And the answer is six. And the six have something in common. What they have in common is that they tend to be places where the political system is not used to, to generate winners and losers in the banking system. Why? For two different kinds of reasons. If you look at the list, the first three countries, Singapore, Malta, and Hong Kong, what do they have in common? They're small countries, very small, effectively city-states. And what does that mean? They're extremely homogeneous populations. To get the uh, kind of conflict that goes on in banking systems like the US throughout its history, you need to have dividing lines. And these three countries are too small and homogeneous to be able to have two separate groups, one with different interests from the other that can establish political rules to take advantage of the other group. The last three countries, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, are countries that have a history of particularly classical liberal constitutions, uh, especially Canada and New Zealand. And we'll talk about the Canadian example in some length. The point here is that like those three um, island or city-states, these three countries, because of their constitutional structure, tend to be countries in which one group doesn't use the political system to establish banking rules that effectively take advantage of the other group. So in, in this list of six countries, three of them are sort of naturally uh, going to have good banking systems because of their small homogeneous populations, and three of them have them because of constitutional history. 
Now let's look at the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is uh, the countries that have very low credit and are very crisis prone. And what you see is they tend to be autocracies. So basic pattern here is non-democracies are systematically less likely to have stable and efficient banking systems. We'll talk a little bit more about the cases, different kinds of autocracies in just a minute. Mexico and Brazil are the two countries that we go through in detail. But then we also find that being a democracy per se is not a solution because, for example, the United States has been a democracy, but it hasn't avoided instability of its banking system. In fact, just since 1840, the US has had 12 major banking crises, while Canada's had zero. By the way, the US had five more before 1840, uh, but, the can but Canada had, had zero. But Canada started in 1817, so 1840 seemed like a good starting point for making this comparison. As I said before, Canada is, has not suffered from underbanking during its history, and here these are uh, statistics that we constructed um, in, in our analysis looking at the credit to GDP and the banking system in the US and Canada over the last 100 years or so. One of the things that you can see here, starting in the 1970s, is the US and Canada started to diverge. What's going on there? Well, in the US, we called that disintermediation from the banking system. The, relative to Canada, the US had a slowdown in the expansion of credit to GDP uh, in the banking system. And in fact, Canada not only has continued to grow its banking system, but the structure of its banks is remarkably similar to what it was 100 years ago, uh, which has been very helpful to Canada in many respects. But let's just point out, when people say things like, shadow banking causes banking crises, let me point something out. Shadow banking is itself an outcome of the game of bank bargains. Shadow banking doesn't happen much in Canada. So that's a very interesting question, too. Not only has Canada been successful in avoiding crises and having abundant credit, but it's also avoided the development of shadow banking. And you can see that through the lack of disintermediation here. How did Canada do that? Well, very simply, part of its regulatory structure is that every five years now, it used to be every 10, but since the 1980s, every five years, all the bank charters in Canada expire simultaneously, and the government is mandated to produce a new banking law. Notice what that does. It means that if there's financial innovation, if there are changing circumstances, the charters and the law have to take that into account. It also means that there's not going to be any speculation over whether there's going to be a banking bill. So I have bad news for senators and congressmen. They don't get to get extra contributions on the risk that they might introduce a bill about banking because the bill gets introduced exogenously every five years. It's a very interesting and very different political economy from what we have in the US. And Canada, of course, all of the major innovations of universal banking that the US took up in the 1990s, Canada took up earlier. 
So the, uh, the Canadian system has managed to be both more stable and more traditional in some sense, and also, I would say, very innovative. In fact, you might say in terms of the timing of major innovations like universal banking, earlier in its innovation in the US. So here's some of the questions. Obviously, we're not going to be able to answer everything in our little discussion here. How much more time do you, do you think we have, Mark? Five or six minutes, OK. But I'm going to talk a little bit, give about a minute to each of these countries, and give you a little bit of a sense of some of the things that come out when we try to dig into this game of bank bargains and answer some of these questions. Our overall approach is to do something that economists almost never do. We're actually going to look at what happened. We're going to take a very careful and sequential look at how these bargains unfolded. And we're going to tell a narrative of what connects politics with banking and then let you decide as the reader whether we've done our work in a dispassionate and thorough way. Here are the five countries we're going to look at. I'll just say a brief word about autocracies. Interestingly, autocracies aren't all the same, and we make the distinction sort of a rough way to divide them, centralized autocracies and weak autocracies. In strong or centralized autocracies like Mexico, the way the banking system works is that it's typically part of a crony centralized network. And the banks are part of the, in Mexico it's sometimes called the six families, maybe you might say in China the 300 families, that control the economy and the allocation of power through the banking system is part of the allocation of power to those corrupt crony networks. When those systems collapse, though, they can create uh, dramatic costs for society, as happened, for example, in Mexico in 1995. And what's interesting about the Mexican case is that normally in the book we talk about how the causality runs from politics to banking outcomes, but then we also point out that there's a dialectic there, that banking outcomes also affect politics. And Mexico is a great example of that, where the collapse of the banking system, the public outrage, over the cost to society of this maintaining this crony network finally leads to the challenge to the PRI and the rise of the, the PAN party and finally a diverse uh, two-party system in Mexico that, um, and, and you might say, the beginning of real democracy there. So that's an interesting one version of how you can explain both how crony networks operate under centralized autocracies and also how sometimes you get Good news, windows of opportunity for the development of democracy that both stabilizes the banking system and increases the supply of credit. In weak or uh, decentralized autocracies like Brazil throughout most of its history, you have a completely different kind of arrangement. Here, the people in charge in the national government don't have much power. They don't have taxation power in particular. The oligarchies that controlled Brazil throughout its history really didn't want to be taxed by the central government. And so what happens there is the central government, its only source, it has very little source of direct revenue, but it has power to charter banks. So what does it use banks for? Revenue. How do you do that? Inflation taxation. So in Brazil, for the last 200 years, it's been the quintessential inflation tax banking power. Why? Because if that's the only way the government can raise its money, that's what the banking system's function is going to be. 
which illustrates another point, which is banks are part of partnerships with governments. And if the government's survival is at stake, the first job of the banking system, before it provides any credit to the private sector, is going to be to meet the needs of the government. So Mexican banking has been crippled by limited crony capitalism. Brazilian autocratic banking has been crippled by a weak state's need to use the banking system, not for private credit, but to support, through inflation taxation, the needs of the state. These are very different kinds of diseases, but nonetheless, they're both crippling. Now, I know we, we're running low on time. I just want to talk very briefly about the U.S. And so the, the U.S. goes through three different periods in its banking history. The early republic, which is the creation of the Bank of the United States, and in each state, one or two or maybe as many as three uh, banks typically only operating in the major city in that state and operating typically run by federalists and typically uh, very much in a monopolistic situation. Now, of course, in a revolutionary country, uh, that isn't going to work for very long as an equilibrium, and very quickly, we really have a, a process you can sort of summarize with Hamilton's undoing, and the growth of what becomes about a 150-year equilibrium, which is the unit banker agrarian populist partnership from 1830, roughly, to 1980. This is a, a unique banking system, and most of U.S. banking history and most of U.S. banking instability is the result of not the uh, safety nets that we're going to talk about after 1970s, but the creation of a very fragile environment of thousands of banks located in several spots, separate spots, all of which is unique. There's no other country that's doing this in the world. And everyone, of course, is laughing at us. The Canadians love writing books uh, about 100 years ago, making fun of the fact that the U.S. seems completely crazy having constructed a banking system that blows up every few years, and that it's transparently the result of the unit banking. Why are we doing it? And of course, the National Monetary Commission, after the panic of 1907, is commissioned to investigate this, and they publish a set of volumes about this big, uh, three of which are about uh, Canada, three about the UK, three about Germany. And what do they conclude? They conclude that other countries have better banking systems than we do, but that the key to changing our banking system is not politically on the table, which is to get rid of unit banking. And so they say, since we can't do the sensible thing, we'll do the next best thing, and we'll create a Federal Reserve System. And, of course, the, the Canadians, remember, Bank of Canada wasn't founded until 1935, so the first 118 years of banking stability in Canada was operating without a central bank. So the point that the, that the Americans learned in 1910 was not that we needed to have a central bank per se, but what we learned was we needed to have a central bank because we politically could not imitate Canada. That was off, off the table. Now, that fell apart finally in the 1980s, which I'll, I won't have time to explain much, but that's okay. Then maybe you'll buy the book all the more. Uh, and what replaces it is a new kind of partnership. I, let, let me say, though, give me just 30 seconds to say, why would farmers, landowning farmers, want to ally themselves with unit bankers to create this crazy 
tens of thousands of banks operating independently in the U.S. Why would they want to do that? Um, after all, those unit bankers charged higher loan rates and paid lower deposit rates than their counterparts in Canada, the branching banks in Canada. But why would you do that? I think that the argument uh, that makes sense of this is that if you're a soybean farmer and you own soybean producing land in, let's say, central Illinois, you're not very diversified and you would like to have a lender who has limited options. So that if that lender, if, soy, if the value of soy goes down 10% and let's say your land falls in 10%, if the banker's only option is to lend against soy, that banker's going to be more forgiving in collateral requirements for the bank. And so you're willing to pay a higher spread, higher loans, get lower deposits, in exchange for the stability of the credit flow that comes from this credit insurance. And that's very consistent with what people were, were saying in this environment. And I want to point out, in Illinois in the early 1920s, unit banking won a statewide referendum. So it wasn't just smoke-filled rooms here, guys. This was uh, people voting to keep this system. And of course, fundamental to all this was that we had the presumption of federalism, meaning state-level decisions, which made it much easier to maintain this unit banking system, which, again, I can't explain fully. I know we're out of time, so I'm going to just go to the very end. Of course, we got the consolidation wave in the 80s and the 90s. Why? Lots of things going on. Big shift over the 20th century from agrarian environments to urban environments, changes in technology, some legal decisions that mattered, uh, inflationary episode of the 60s and the 70s, and financial disintermediation, uh, other things happening that propelled Alan Greenspan, the loss of U.S. banks' global markets and the crises of the 1980s, which made the FDIC and the Congress very willing to allow banks to start to acquire other banks as a way to save money for the FDIC. So there were all sorts of things that went into this. The key point is, what it did was create a new political game, which was the game of deciding who's going to be allowed to become one of the new nationwide powerhouses and the answer is those who demonstrate good citizenship, as determined by the Federal Reserve Board, which is a reliable coward, <laughs> a reliable uh, party that's going to, how is the Fed going to determine who's a good citizen by seeing who can pay people to testify before the Fed that they are good citizens? Because that is the criterion. The criterion is how much have you paid to other people who are willing to come and testify that you're a good citizen. And it's, uh, it's kind of remarkable, but that is exactly what happened. So the mega banks are going to be created with all sorts of benefits, market power, too big to fail protection, along with scale and scope efficiencies. But also a big part of that is going to be weak prudential regulation as their benefits. And they're going to get all those benefits so long as they're willing to share those with the people who are going to testify to help them get those licenses. And the basis for that testimony is going to be that the banks are sharing the rents with them, which is evidence that they're good citizens. It's just a rent-sharing arrangement. And to, and to leverage this even more, in 1992, we get the GSE Act, because the banks are complaining to the activist groups, all this is documented in our book, that, well, we'd like to give you even more, but we can't if we have to hold the loans on our books. So why don't we get somebody else to hold the loans, the GSEs, 
are pressured to do so. And George H.W. Bush signs the GSE Act in 1992, hoping that that will help him win a very difficult election. By the way, I want to point something out. This is not just a Democrat Party problem. George H.W. Bush signed that law. George W. Bush took Bill Clinton's version of this and expanded it. Why? Newt Gingrich was also a very powerful part of this. Why? Well, a couple weeks ago, you may have heard Rand Paul give a lecture saying, you Republicans who want to run for president, you better figure something out. You can't win unless you start getting people in cities to vote for you. That, my friends, is a powerful insight that all of these Republicans Republican uh, presidential candidates better keep in mind. And it was very much in the minds of the two Bushes when they pushed in for this. Now, the, the key thing about the GSEs, of course, is that although they were initially, these mandates were for particularly favored groups, in order to meet those mandates, they had to weaken their underwriting standards for everyone. So this became not just a program to help the disadvantaged, but a middle-class entitlement. Now I'm basically done, except just showing you the graphs. So you can see here in 1992, the Community and Reinvestment Act was nothing until the GSE Act combining with it. And the merger wave, that was the key thing. The merger wave is what propels, in combination with the GSE Act and the Community and Reinvestment Act, this expansion so that the contractual arrangements between merging banks at the times of their mergers and these activist groups totals by the end of the period almost a trillion dollars. And the total contractual arrangements between the merging banks and these groups, not just the ones surrounding the mergers themselves, but the so-called voluntary agreements, reached about two and a half trillion dollars. This gives you a little bit of a sense of the proportion of mandates that the GSEs had to follow. And it was around 2004 that these were particularly binding that led to a particular expansion in no-docs lending and increases in loan-to-value ratios. You can see here, loan-to-value ratios in mortgages in the US are very low. But then, starting around 1999 and then expanding, especially after 2003, the percentage of mortgages originated with virtually zero down payments skyrockets, something that we would never have had in the US in 1980 or even 1990 was virtually zero phenomenon. By 2007, it's half of the market. Why didn't Canada follow the US? Why did Canada, well, you know, again, the simple answer is Canada is a branch banking country. But why is Canada a branch banking country? And why did it do all the other things, some of which I've mentioned, that were good regulatory practice? And I'm going to tell you, it's all because of the French. And I, I say that, especially when I have a French-Canadian moderator, I say, it's all because of the French. And they get very happy. And then I say, because if they hadn't done that, the French would have destroyed Canada. Hadn't done what? Passed the Canadian, uh, and established the Canadian Constitution to insulate Canadian development from the French. That's what the Canadian Constitution is all about. By diluting French control through the centralization of power and the appointment of the Canadian Senate. By the way, raise your hand if you knew prior to this moment that the Canadian Senate to this day is still appointed by the Queen of England. 
It's a very important fact. So Canada has been a liberal democracy, one that has a, some certainly populist elements, but also checks and balances and centralization of power, partly to try to dilute out populist influences. The US adopted a very different strategy in our constitution for checks and balances, which did not work well at all for limiting populism, at least as far as the banking system is concerned. Okay, I'm, I'm at the end, I'm sorry I went over a little bit. Key point is, in democracies, expropriation risk is low, so you tend to get banking systems that work well to provide credit, but depending on whether they're populist or liberal democracies, the abundance of credit may be combined with, as in the US, lots of banking crises because of the politicization of the supply of credit. And unfortunately, because that's a political equilibrium, it's not something that we economists have a good answer for. I'm going to stop it there, and thank you very much for your attention. Well, first, I want to say um, it's good to be back at Cato and uh, thank Mark for inviting me to, to, to give some critiques and some comments on, on what I think is a fabulous book. Um, it's also um, an honor and a privilege here to comment on a work by somebody who I've, um, I've studied his work for so many years, uh, I think starting in college when I was an economics major, all the way through. So now to have a chance to engage in a dialogue and have the opportunity to ask the questions that I was curious, I uh, always wanted to ask him while I was reading the book um, in person. So what I thought I would do is just first talk a little bit of this, about what I think see are the strengths of, of, the, of the work in the book, and then talk about and provide some critiques of, of some places where I think um, we could talk a little bit more, where I'd like to hear a little bit more explanation and response to what I think are some potential um, weaker points of, of the argument. Um, but overall, you know, uh, I want my critique to be taken in the vein of, of um, you know it's a very good book and one that I have to recommend when you put it down and you have so many questions and have so many ideas and that it gets your mind moving and prompts you to think deeper about an issue. And even if there are areas where you may disagree uh, on a particular conclusion, the overall framework is so strong that it provides a great basis for continued study and improving your knowledge on a particular subject, which I, I sincerely believe this work does. So to start off with, you know, what are the strengths that I see here? And it's certainly, the, uh, first and foremost, is the approach. Um, you know, as someone who spent a good chunk of his career working in Congress um, and thinking about how legislation is developed and developing it and uh, seeking its passage, um, the focus on the political system, and particularly about the idea of a bargain, although I would say um, um, bargain is, is pr probably, a, usually the term I would think of is how to build your coalition. I think there's similar types of concepts, is how do you build a coalition, one, to actually pass a piece of legislation, but also one that's strong enough to make sure that the piece of legislation is enduring and stable and durable. That is how the legislative process works at its core, and it's a framework and, uh, and, uh, for thinking about uh, policy that I think is often ignored. Too often, um, policy, particularly economic policy, is relegated to a supply and demand chart or strict economic and often theoretical reasoning, which, while helpful, and it's certainly a critical part 
of uh, improving our understanding of economic topics and also policy, um, it's not sufficient. Um, there's an important realistic, practical, political uh, aspect that needs to be considered for any policy, uh, which this book and the framework does. You know, I think another way to think about it is that this book remembers, to kind of paraphrase John Marshall, is that it's a uh, banking system we're propounding. Right? This, is, this, is a, um, this is a banking systems are inherently devised and uh, framed by political institutions. Banking systems rely at the core, like most economic activity, on property rights. Property rights are established, created, monitored, enforced by governments. So there's naturally going to be a, a close relationship and interest between banking systems and, and governments. Um, and that's not a, uh, a bad thing. That's a, that's, a, that's a fact of life, that in any free market, there's going to be a close relationship between uh, governments and property rights. Um, so the question, though, is then, because there's going to be this close relationship, um, is how do we think about and uh, how do we understand how that relationship works and how we make sure that when we frame our, our, our banking system and um, establish the rules and then continue the enforcement of those rules, that we get good outcomes. Um, and I think that framework and thinking about how to build a coalition in that nature is critical and um, I think is a unique approach to, uh, from an economics perspective. Uh, and I wish there was more of that type of thinking. Um, I think there are, um, in other contexts in the political system, Lots of that's the normal approach is to how to think about a coalition. But for some reason, when it comes to some particularly banking issues, we forget that coalitions are what matter. Um, you know, having spent most of my time in the Senate, I tend to think in 60. How do you get 60 votes for something? Um, I think that's a. Um, but even if you're working in the House, any political system, you have to think how do you get a majority? Prefer preferably a supermajority, so you get a strong base of political support for what you're doing. So it's a durable coalition. And for banking, that's very important. You have long-term obligations. So making sure that your property rights system is durable is critical. Um, so um, I think the also thinking about uh, coalition building is important to remember here, here. And I think there's an element of this in the book, um, is that thinking about um, building coalitions makes you reach out to different parts of, 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 of uh, the political system than you otherwise w would. Um, you know, you think that something involving bank, banks, for example, uh, uh, legislation involving banks, you'd, the only people you'd need to think about would be banks. Well, you know, it's a country of 300 million people. Any piece of legislation impacts um, uh, the country in a variety of ways. And one of my experiences is that you just never know until Congress begins its legislative process to realize how a particular piece of legislation, regardless of what subject matter, hits uh, or impacts uh, or influences a particular um, uh, interest or group in the, in the country whose interests would be potentially uh, adversely affected or benefited from. Um, knowing about all of those uh, impacts are important for that legislative process to the extent you can incorporate and fix problems. And it also opens your eyes, I think, in an important way to the fact that there are a lot of, of legitimate needs in the country, okay, credit availability being one of the key ones, that have to be have to be addressed, um, and the, now certainly there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, but having a broader approach to the to policy 
and in keeping in mind the particularly the broad nature of the for the United States, its uh, its its electorate is critical. And I'm going to come back to that because I think it's an important point that has other implications uh, for the conclusions here. The other strength, another strength I want to emphasize here is really the narratives, the historical narratives. I strongly recommend. I think here, you know, Calamaris and Haber, Haber are the uh, Plutarchs of banking history. Um, they provide wonderful narratives that provide lessons um, for how to think about banking systems, um, particularly uh, the the, uh, the narratives on uh, Brazil and Mexico, two very important economies, which I suspect. Uh, most people who are even banking experts have, have uh, little or no knowledge about their histories of their banking systems. I found them particularly interesting um, and, um, um, and illustrative of, of, of important points. I think they also help, um, help provide perspective and makes you sh shows the strengths and weaknesses of the U.S. banking system in a much clearer way. I think it helps to uh, show that, um, uh, force one to realize that there are a lot of different approaches and ways to, uh, uh, to uh, tackle a particular problem. And I think that expands the, uh, uh, the ability of, I think, one reading these to think more broadly about these issues. And I think it also shows that you know, banking systems um, are not produced based on a blank slate. Uh, they're products of history, um, of a country's history, culture, political situations, economy. These factors are, um, are critical in thinking about how a political system will approach founding a banking system to begin with, and then how it will perform and evolve over time. As those key factors about a society change, the banking system will not be immune from them. Uh, I think the book does a great job talking about the, the role of technology since particularly the 1970s, and the impact that had on the structure of the banking system, ATMs, were a revolutionary concept that had profound impact uh, not only on how banks operate, but how they're regulated and on the structure of our, of our economy. Um, another one that comes to mind, too, is the kind of nationalization of commerce, uh, even outside of, the bankings, uh, outside of the banking sphere, and about how revolution, the revolution in, in technology and transportation has made a truly national economy for the first time, indeed, in, in, in many cases, a global economy. Um, that cha those changes in technology uh, then certainly translate back to the, um, how a banking system is governed and how what um, is available in terms of the legislative process to, um, uh, to proceed in reforms and, to keep, and, and the impetus to keep the banking system up to reflect those changes. So I think that, that the, um, the book is very strong here about showing those important Important factors that oftentimes don't get factored in, and when you think about how you want uh, banking systems and banking reforms, um, also you know, along the uh, same lines is the international perspective of the book. I think is is fantastic. I think uh, Charles and I have kind of the neat, neat distinction of probably being the only two people who've ever read the uh, National Monetary Commission of 1910s reports and have found it interesting and illuminating and worth reading. Um, um, I just think it's unfortunate that it's been 100 years since we've gone back to tackle and look about look uh, outside the United States for, um, uh, for examples and case studies of how to think about reforming our banking system. Um, and I think that approach here uh, also adds to the persuasiveness of the uh, author's arguments. Um, it's also fun to read about, uh, again, if, uh, if that hasn't come through. I think the, these histories were just a lot of fun to read. Um, that brings me kind of to the, the uh, 
uh, last kind of strength I want to talk about um, is the grappling of the issues of the book. Um, there are many books I think you can come well, that will end with a clear policy conclusion. Um, and there's certainly um, strong um, recommendations and, and um, uh, indications of where the authors think good policy would be in the future. But there's also, and probably equally, equally more, a real back and forth about, and you can see weighing of a lot of considerations about which is more important. Is it technology more important? Are institutions actually more important than ideas? Uh, how do governments that are structured like parliaments, uh, are they better than, say, a Madisonian republic? There's not a clear-cut answer. I know there's certainly there's a d division between kind of populist and liberalism. But when it gets down to the specifics, I thought there was a real good balancing uh, and weighing of the pros and cons. And I think that's very reflective and important to have as, a, as an outcome. Because in the legislative process, it's rare, rarely do you get a clear cut, this is going to be the, the, the perfect policy to pursue. Uh, the details do matter. And as I indicated earlier, there are a lot of factors in a country of, of 300 million people that one has to consider in drafting and preparing a piece of major legislation, particularly on something as important as banking, um, and securing its, securing its passage. Um, and that, that, I think, is a real strength. Is sometimes the, it's not necessarily the answers that you arrive at but, uh, that's important, but it's making sure that you're asking the right questions and at least having attempts at answers at those and weighing all of those competing factors that is the hallmark of, of good crafting of good legislation. Um, and so in that respect, that's another kind of my fourth real strength, I think, of the book. Now, um, as much as I enjoyed the book and strongly recommend it, um, this wouldn't be as much fun if I didn't have a few critiques. Uh, and also give Charles a good chance to, uh, to, to respond. Um, so with more ado, uh, let me jump into it. The first is, is um, the book takes um, at core, uh, it appears to have a um, dispute with James Madison. James Madison, the Federalist number 10, famously argues that, that governments, uh, uh, a republic, an extended republic is going to be better governed than a small republic. Because in a large extended republic, no one faction will be able to, uh, to dominate. That the competition amongst different factions uh, will ensure that there's a lack of stability and that the only way stability will be able to preserve and the only coalitions that will be able to emerge will be those that um, serve the public interest. Um, you know, as you heard the critique here, the kind of great bargain thesis essentially appears to be in some cases here um, that um, the extended republic actually makes for worse outcomes. Um, and if you look at the data, uh, which countries show up as having the most stable um, uh, banking systems and the one with the best, most availability credit, they are generally, as we saw, smaller um, republics, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, not large countries. Um, that is a, um, that's a pretty significant uh, conclusion um, that, um, you know, in my book, James Madison is always entitled to uh, strict scrutiny in terms of co constitutional interpretation. And that before one um, advances on, in a manner that uh, is directly contrary to James Madison, you better have, uh, better have a pretty good argument uh, for doing so. Um, and, and also, I think then the follow-up critique to that is, if that's true in banking, um, is it true overall? 
Is, are the author's concerns and problems really at core the, the U.S. Constitution and the size and structure of the Constitution uh, of the United States? Um, did Madison get it wrong, to put it in other words? And, um, a second critique I would have of the book is that um, is the samples size and kind of choice of countries that it examines. Um, I think this is one of one, I appreciate the author's need to keep a uh, already lengthy book within manage, uh, manageable limits. But if there was going to be a volume two, I think uh, several other countries um, deserve uh, uh, some more attention. The first is Germany. Um, of all the countries that are discussed, and Germany is discussed in the book, uh, although not in as nearly as much length as the other, other countries, is it is very similar to the United States in having a federal structure. Its lands or states have a strong role in the, in the governance of the, at the federal level. Um, and they also have a very strong and uh, diversified banking system uh, with uh, unique players in the same way that the United States does. It's not as centralized in the same way that Canada is. So it seems to be actually a better case study than some of the other countries picked. Um, and I'd like to know more about how Germany uh, differs from the United States whether or not they suffer from the same problems. Germany also uh, was greatly affected by uh, the financial crisis. It was hit pretty hard by some of its largest institutions. And whether or not they suffer the same problems or if there are new problems there. I'd also like to have seen in the book a discussion of the European Union. And I think um, that the reason the European Union would have been useful is that it shows that the early stages of the problems the United States faced in establishing its banking system. From a sample size perspective, certainly the European Union has not been around very long. But the, the problems it's facing, though, are very similar to the problems that the United States political system faced with its banking system, um, and I think are instructive. Uh, the first is, is that it helps us see that the, how um, the founders had to deal with states that had strong connections with their citizenry. And I know that's a part that sometimes baffles um, kind of economists when they approached the US banking system is, why were the states so strong? You know, was this, you know, was this cronyism? Was this you know, just populism? And I think it's actually something a little bit different. Um, this is where politics and economics, I think, interact in ways that sometimes the economic side doesn't fully appreciate. But people's loyalties and connections with their states and, and countries and governments um, are not always a, uh, uh, a rational decision. You're born usually into your country, and there's a connection there. And you know, Lincoln referred to it as you know, these mystic cords of memory that connect people who live in the same country and are governed by the same laws. Those are very powerful. And if we think about our own connections with our um, uh, even local governments to this day, but with your own country, um, those are very strong. And so when you're trying to uh, apply a, a new banking system that um, aims to override that, you're cutting across a very strong cultural trend that um, should not be underestimated. Um, and I think the European Union has seen the real difficulty there in how they, how they move towards what, certainly in a rational approach, seems to make a lot of sense in having a more unified system. But the reality on the ground is, is that those countries are still uh, have very strong active citizenry with deep loyalties to them that do not simply exist towards the European Union. Um, it's changing over time. It'll be interesting to watch that evolution. But I think it's an important case study that could be useful to one 
again, in, be instructive to the United States on how to, how, uh, to explain why we've had such a difficulty with our banking system. I don't think it's solely a cronyism thing. I think it's a, partly a, a, can be attributed to a political reality. Um, changes in technology and transportation, again, have changed that um, and how we have, and w which governments we look to for, uh, uh, for support and, uh, uh, and affiliation. Um, and I think that, that contributes to it. It also would be useful, I think, from a perspective of how to think about the European Union and how to deal with their, their banking system as they go through this evolution uh, in financial regulation. Um, the, um, the third critique I think I would have is that, um, is I think sometimes the, the book is a bit harsh on the American political system. Um, I think for the most part, you know, the United States Constitution's done a pretty good job, uh, compared to where we were to where we are now, um, uh, life here is very good <laughs> and we shouldn't, we should not, um, uh, kind of over um, be overly pessimistic about the American political system. It's again, we are a big country with 300 million people. Yes, politics can be sometimes frustrating and difficult, but that's um, that's a um, that's a part of democracy. Trying to get people to agree uh, on a particular policy is difficult. Uh, is difficult, and that's um, that's something that I think should be appreciated, and also. I think we also miss out on, by being too pessimistic, we miss some of the great victories that we, our political systems had in the economic sphere. I think the, the victory over inflation uh, since, um, since really 1980, um, could be another case study here of, of why has why inflation as a policy been largely controlled for 30 years? Um, I su suggest uh, that the political system was certainly part of that, uh, but I'd also suggest that um, public support was critical and that maybe a little bit more attention to how uh, an informed electorate and strong public support for good policy ideas convincingly made, um, I think the work that President Reagan and former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker made in convincing the American public uh, the dangers of inflation have been, um, um, are a, a case study in how persuasion can influence an electorate for long periods of time and produce very good outcomes. And we shouldn't, as uh, is, is, uh, good Democrats, we should not, um, uh, small d, uh, should, uh, <laughs> should, uh, should not uh, underestimate and value the importance of persuading your own citizens for good policy. And then finally, one last point, uh, and this gets to my, what I think my, my big question is, is uh, that I think more attention could be spent to um, regulatory incentives. Um, Sometimes in the book, the, the focus is on kind of a political system or only at the federal level. But a great deal of financial regulation is, in, in a day-to-day -day perspective, the majority of it is done at the by the regulators. Um, there's not much of a discussion about the, the incentives they face. Uh, how has their structures impacted uh, their incentives to, do, to, to take the right outcome? And in this uh, area, I think, is a critical, um, a critical area for further study and reflection. And with that, I think I'll leave as my kind of last and kind of big question is that, um, Charles, is you, you seem to be very concerned about, about populism and, and that there being almost too much connection between the, the electorate and its government officials. So if that's the case, is the structure of the CFPB the ideal structure for you for a government agency? <laughs> Thank you.
Now, as tempted as I am to allow Charles to have 20, 30 minutes to respond, <laughs> if you promise, it'll actually be two. Then you have two. Hours in your hands. Okay, I'm going to hold you to it. Okay, go. Your two minutes is taking away. Thanks very much, uh, Andrew. Those are really uh, very well taken comments, especially all the ones about the strengths. But uh, <laughs> the ones about the weaknesses are too. Let me just hit them very quickly. Um, I don't think we mean to argue that small versus large is really the issue so much as if you are going to be a large and diverse country, and I'd say Canada, as far as I'm concerned, Canada is a large and diverse country. The issue is diversity of the country. But the Canadians, particularly because the British were in charge, tried to deal with that problem, and I think they constructed a constitution that's better able to deal with that. Um, so I, I don't think it's large versus small, but if you're going to be diverse and, and big, you better have a way to deal with that. Germany, we do talk about, we, we could talk about more about it, but I want to say what I think the key element is. Although Germany at the time of the rise of the banking system and the industrial complex in the late 19th, early 20th century was um, a quasi-autocracy, it was sort of a balancing quasi-autocracy but more importantly, even though there was some power relegated to the states, not with respect to commercial banking. Why? Because the one overarching objective of Germany was to become a great continental industrial and military power. And commercial banks were part of a military strategy. And we emphasize a lot of banking is about military strategy and military technology. It's as important as the weapons. Um, why didn't we talk about the EU? Um, during the writing of the book, I was an EU official, a regulatory official at the European Systemic Risk Board, and I didn't really want to talk about the EU, but I think, <laughs> uh, I honestly didn't think it was appropriate. But I do think your questions and comments are very well taken, and I fully plan to beat up on the EU at, <laughs> as soon as, now that I've resigned. Um, are we too harsh on the American political system? I agree with you. I mean, I think we're trying to say it. Maybe we don't say it as well as we should have in Chapter 15, that really once you've gone the way the U.S. has gone as a sort of more populist country um, compared, let's say, to Canada, we don't have the real veto gates, checkpoints that uh, Canada has. It's all about uh, the quality of the, of the people and the democracy. And, yes, I agree with you. I would look at Thatcher and I would look at Reagan as examples of people who mobilized public perception in a very positive way in a classically liberal direction. And I think that's exactly what we're interested in. But um, it's a hard road ahead. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, the incentives of the regulators. Well, we do talk about that with respect to the Fed a bit and the crisis. But I agree with you. This is a much bigger problem. And it's a much bigger problem, I think, not just in banking, but thinking about the whole, you know, um, extra constitutional structure that's emerged in the 20th and 21st centuries of all these regulatory agencies with these powers that I don't know where they came from and exactly how they're structured and what their incentives are, I think is a topic very worthy of further reflection. So I couldn't agree more really. Well, I think we've got time for a few questions. Uh, please wait till the microphone uh, comes to you. Please actually have a question rather than a statement. We are running a bit on time, so I'd also ask you to keep your questions uh, brief. Uh, we'll let Bert here have the first. Bert, again, wait till the microphone as comes, it gets to you. Um, thank you. Bert Ely, a, a banking consultant. Uh, Charlie, uh, I'm trying to figure out 
where the policy direction is here. And it seems to me, particularly in, given your level of praise of, of Canada, that uh, you would uh, advocate, first of all, no more bank charters and further consolidation uh, in the banking industry, uh, potentially more trillion-dollar-plus uh, banking institutions uh, like Canada, which then raises this question, doesn't that uh, lead to uh, or make even worse the whole issue of too big to fail? Or to put the question slightly differently, how do you uh, reconcile uh, a global interest, in, as I understand it, in getting rid of too big to fail, mm -hmm. and yet at the same time you seem to be advocating for a more consolidated banking industry, which means more <coughs> big, too big to fail institutions? Thank you, Bert. Great question. So we, we do get at this a bit in the book, uh, in chapters 14 and 15. Canada, I wouldn't say that we think that we could imitate anybody. That's one of the key points. I don't think we can imitate Canada's banking system because we can't imitate Canada's constitutional system. And there's more to the banking system than just the scale of banks. So we, we have a couple of paragraphs in the book going through the literature on bank scale and bank performance and basically saying there is no real robust connection. And the reason is because large banks sometimes arise in the context of Canada and sometimes in the context of European countries or the United States, and they function very differently. In Canada, large banks are competitive. Every academic study of the Canadian banking system finds, amazingly, that even though there are five large banks in Canada, of course, there are a thousand smaller banks, um, the Canadian banking system is highly competitive by every measure and has been for 200 years. So what's really interesting is the, the, the structure of Canadian banking has not made it anti-competitive. In fact, throughout the history of the two countries, it's been more competitive than the U.S. So our, I think that the key point I would make then is two. One, you can't imitate other countries' banking systems because those come from their histories and their constitutions. But secondly, more generally, bank industrial structure or industrial organization by itself doesn't tell you much. You know, emphasize at least what I would take away from the book was, and, and I, there's part of me who shared that kind of frustration with, well, you know, Charles doesn't lay out a 10-point to-do list, but I, it, it is a positive book, not a normative book, in, in my view. It, it is a description of why are we where we are, not a road But, but I do have, I do have a 12-point to-do list. <laughs> That's and as I like to joke, you know, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I write about uh, what you, we should do. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, I write about why we can't possibly do it. And on <laughs> Sunday, I just pray. Uh, we, uh, there was another question over here, I think, or we'll take this one here. Uh, yes, right. Warren Coates. Charles, as, as you know, I share the discussants' uh, praise of the book. It's a, it's a great book. Uh, but I want to ch challenge a bit the heavy reliance on bank credit as a mm -hmm. measure of efficiency. Uh, there are many others, but bank credit uh, can be, and I think is significantly influenced by the extent to which other intermediation markets are developed, the bond market, mm -hmm. equity market, et cetera, which is extensively developed in the US. So bank credit is much less important as a source of credit. Uh, what other measures of efficiency right. might we look to? Good, good question. So 
remember, just for the big sort of opening chapters and closing chapters of the book, we use, we look at cross-country studies and these simple numerical comparisons where we're using credit to GDP. But when we're looking at the individual countries, of course, we don't just look at that. So let's talk about Canada, for example, versus the U.S. Not only did they avoid banking crises and have more credit to GDP, but when you, if you were to adjust in Canada credit to GDP relative to population density, the Canadian comparison will look even better for Canada. But more importantly, if you look at... Um, Efficiency measures like operating expenses, physical expenses, they would look better. Or, most importantly, if you looked at peripheral areas, even in 1910 in Canada, and you asked, what's the gradient, geographical gradient, of credit spreads between the financial center in Montreal and the most remote parts of Canada, you'd found that it was about, let's say, one percentage point, whereas in the U.S. it would have been two or three times that. So what's interesting is you can also measure a banking system in terms of how well it mobilizes across geography uh, funding. And from that standpoint, it also worked better. Final comparison is how much does it allow the technology to become innovative in banking? And how and there, the Scottish system, but also the Canadian system, I think, performed very well. And a final one maybe uh, is, did it allow the country to become fully integrated in international trade? And of course, the Canadian system, unlike the American system, which was the U.S. system, was hobbled by its inability to have a very healthy uh, banker's acceptance market and um, bill of exchange market, whereas from an early date, the Canadian banks were very successful in both, which wasn't a coincidence because it was especially the need to mobilize trade that drove the British Empire to insist on a successful banking system that could do that. I fully agree with you, Warren. I don't want to make it sound like it's just these two dimensions. They're the two convenient ones to talk about, but you have to dig deeper. I agree. I think we've got time for one more question right here in the front. Thank you. Luann Zerlow, Catholic University. You didn't mention too much about the gearing of banks, extraordinarily high level of gearing, of especially U.S. and European, of course. I'm wondering how important you think that is. And, um, you know, recently read, I guess, your alma mater um, colleague at Stanford, Ajit, the bankers have no clothes. I'm curious what you think of that in relation to the crises. I, I wrote a uh, very critical review of that book in the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance. Um, and I think that that, um, while I, I tried to agree with part of their argument, I think that that book is um, fundamentally wrong in its way of thinking about um, the can, the way that um, capital structure matters or doesn't matter for banks' uh, supply of credit. So I think that I don't, I don't want to associate myself with the arguments in that book too closely. But I would uh, point out that they're right, that gearing used to be a lot lower. That is, capital ratios were higher historically. But they're wrong in the numbers that they give for that because they didn't really check very carefully. When you do check, what you find is that there isn't a magic number. There isn't. So in the U.S. in 1893, if you were in a medium-sized town in the Midwest or the South or the Far West, the capital ratio of your bank would be about 35%. But if you were a Canadian branch bank operating more stably with lower credit spreads and better on all these grounds, your capital ratio is about half of that. Why? Because your risk was lower. So... 
the notion of risk-based capital, I think, is a valid notion. And so the, there is no magic ratio. So there are several things about their discussion, historical discussion, I think isn't right. But I agree with you that gearing is an important issue. And we talk especially about the fact that U.S. banks were allowed to, in my view, over-gear as part of a political bargain. And that risk-based capital standards enforced in a non-credible way was very much part of that. Now, how to fix it, I have a, a paper called An Incentive Robust Program for Financial Reform. Um, but as Mark pointed out, the book only mentions that article. We don't, we don't advocate it because we wanted to stick to our knitting uh, and, and just talk about what happened. Well, then what I should say is after you've read the book, I will note that Charles has a number of his papers on his website. So, of course, after you read the book, you can go there, <laughs> read some of the other papers, and I really would encourage you to do that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we've only really been able to scratch the surface, even though we went long. It really is a very... Uh, comprehensive book. And so again, I would encourage you to read it. And to facilitate that, we actually have copies for sale right out front. Uh, and I know that Charles would be happy to sign one for you and he'll be around a little bit longer. We will also have a reception in the Winter Garden out front. So please join us for some wine, beer, and cheese and uh, continue the conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Again, thanks so much. Thank for you.